Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Joshua, the first chapter, and we're reading the first nine verses. Let's give careful attention to the public reading of God's words. It's found in Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert of Lebanon to the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country, to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips, meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it, then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word to each of our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your word, your word which is truth, and who has called us to engage in the study of the word. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would sweeten this word in our hearts and in our lives, that together we might grow in our knowledge of you and ourselves and the world that you have made, that we might more enjoy the calling that you have given to us, and that we might honor you more along the path, praying in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Be seated, please. Well, we are in a three-part series on Joshua 1, 1 to 9, and it's a text that is about a time of transition in Israel's life, the transition in leadership from Moses to Joshua. It was also written for a period of transition when God's people were again making a transition from the leadership of the likes of Moses and Joshua to the leadership of these folks that were called the judges in the book of Judges. And so it's appropriate, as uh, we as a congregation are in transition, that we look at these verses to see what God has to say to us from them. And last week we learned one simple thing, and that was that transitions happen, and uh, that we we have to uh, honor the past, and we've got to be anticipating and expectful that God's going to do good things uh, in the future. Uh, we've, we realized also that in times of transition, when there are things that are uncertain, one of the very best things that we can do is stick to the tasks that we know are certain. Keep about the main thing, and uh, the main thing in a sense that God has given us to do as a congregation is to keep persevering until we all make it all the way home to heaven. And along the way, we are to be bringing others with us on that path. 
And so just as Joshua was given the task of entering the promised land, we as the New Testament church have the task of entering the true promised land because Joshua was only kind of doing a dress rehearsal and the reality is found in Christ and in the church. And so the task that God has given us is simply to do everything that we can uh, individually, as families, as a congregation, to make sure that we all keep on that path uh, as we make our way from where we are to that eternal kingdom and to be about the business of bringing other people along with us. Well, God knows this thing called procrastination. Uh, he, He gets it. Uh, procrastination, putting off till tomorrow what we could be doing today. I think my wife would tell you that I am not a procrastinator. Uh, she, uh, we've been married like um, uh, almost 40 years. We're planning our 40th for next summer. I finally get it when she asks me to do something. I just do it. I don't, I've learned that it doesn't do any good to put it off. Um, in fact, it can get you in trouble. But, but my wife also knows that, that there are some times when I can procrastinate. In particular, if I don't believe that I can do the job. See, if, if, I, if I have something to do and, and I, I just, I know I can do it and I've got the tools to do it and I've got the resources to do it, I just do it. But if I have doubts, if I lack confidence that I either have the knowledge or the skill or the resources, it's easy to put that on the back burner and to procrastinate. God gets this. And so having given us the task in verses 1 and 2, in the next couple of verses, 3, 4, and 5, which we're going to look at this morning, in those verses, God gives us some promises And the intention of these promises is to give us the encouragement that we need to stick with the task that he gave us in verses 1 and 2. There is a logic to this text. And so this morning we want to look at these promises that God gives us. And he gives us three of them in these couple of verses. Promises that God gives us so that we will stay on task as a congregation, even though we are in a time of transition. And here's the first promise that God gives, and it's kind of, in a sense, the starting point. He simply promises that the task will be accomplished. See, I procrastinate when I don't think I can do it. God gets that, and so the first promise that he gives to you as his church, having given you a task, is the promise that you're going to be successful in the task. And he does that to motivate you, to take away doubt, to take away lack of confidence, to convince you that you have what it takes to carry out the task that God has given you of entering into heaven and bringing others along with it. Let's look at verses 3 through 4. Notice God says, I will give you every place where you set your foot as I promised Moses. And then in verse 4, he specifies those boundaries. But notice the promise here, I will give you every place where you set your foot as I promised Moses. Now, remember that rabbi who said that reading the Bible in translation is like kissing your bride through the veil? There's often stuff that is kind of like, and if any of you are bilingual, you know uh, that 
that Italian saying that the translator is a traitor because whenever you translate from one language to another, a little bit of something is maybe added, a little bit of something is taken away. That does not mean that we can't understand God's word in translation. We certainly can. The church has done it for centuries. But it does mean there are at times nuances that get kind of lost in translation. And um, in, 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 in the Hebrew text, it doesn't actually say, I will give you. Remember that, that verse in verse 3, I will give you every place? In the Hebrew text, it actually says, I have given you. It's a past tense, not a future tense. Now, the fact is, it's a past tense that is referring to the future. One thing that Hebrew will do at times is they'll speak of something in the future with a past tense. And this is often done in the prophetic literature. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the 12 minor prophets. And so grammarians tend to call this a prophetic perfect. But uh, in reality, it can be used anywhere in the Bible. And it's really, it's really rhetorical. It's kind of like this. I can say to my students, and I often do, if you remember everything that I have said in class, you've, you've aced your exam. See, I can, I, I can speak of that future exam as already aced. I'm so confident that they'll ace it if they only remember everything that I've said. They laugh too. In other words, there, what God does at times is he speaks of the future with a past tense, because he's so certain it's going to take place, and that's what he does here. So probably what we should, how we should translate this is not simply, I will, but something like, I most certainly will give you. Then we need to put it in bold, we need to italicize it, we need to underscore it, and we need to change the color of the font That's what the Hebrew is doing. It is just making this promise as emphatic as it can. So God just wants to assure you this morning that in this task of you persevering from where you are individually and as families and as a congregation, you persevering from where you are and making it safely all the way home into heaven, He's guaranteeing that you're going to get there. He's making that promise emphatic. The task will be accomplished. It certainly was for Joshua. Joshua 1, 1 to 5 is kind of the introduction to the book. It's, it's, it's giving us a bird's eye view of Joshua in seminary. Those five chapters are Joshua's training. Then in chapters 6 through 12, it's kind of like Joshua entering into pastoral ministry. He's actually leading the people into the promised land. Chapter 6 starts with them crossing the Jordan River and taking Jericho. And then the rest of those chapters describe all of those conquest stories they actually did. God gave them the task, crossed the Jordan, possessed the land, and guess what? The rest of the book goes on to describe how they did it. You see... The promise is emphatic. And the promise will certainly be fulfilled for the church as well. All we need to do is go to that last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. 
Now, I have a hunch that in a congregation of this size, you've come from different church backgrounds, and you've probably had different teachings on the meaning of the book of Revelation, and some of them are kind of straightforward, and some of them are kind of maybe a more little a little convoluted and hard to follow and esoteric. A lot of different interpretations of the book of Revelation. And uh, I remember a, a seminary professor saying that there were a bunch of seminarians who were playing basketball on a Friday afternoon at a local high school gym. And while they're playing basketball, they're having these you know, deep theological discussions about the proper interpretation of the book of Revelation. And the janitor comes out. And the janitor says, you guys are arguing about the book of Revelation and what it means. I can tell you what it means in a couple of words. Two words. Here's what Revelation means. Jesus wins. (laughs) Now, there might be a lot of things we don't understand about the book of Revelation. But that we get. The church has a lot of differences about how to interpret the book of Revelation. We all agree on the most fundamental... It's kind of like Genesis 1, yes? All these different interpretations, but on all the fundamentals of what Genesis 1 teaches, the church agrees. And we all agree what Revelation teaches. In the end, Jesus wins. In the end, his people make it all the way home. And in the end, they make it home in a great throng because they've brought all sorts of other people with them. People from every corner of the globe, people who speak every language, people from every race and ethnicity, Jesus wins. The the task is accomplished. As surely as Joshua led the people across the Jordan River into the promised land, Jesus will bring his church with him and we will make it all the way home. And there are going to be so many of us that Revelation says can't even count them. So just leave this morning from this service just with that confidence that the task is going to be accomplished. And the the purpose for that confidence is so that you won't procrastinate in doing the things that you're supposed to be doing. See, Zig Ziglar, if you know that name, was not the first motivational speaker. Zig Ziglar learned all of his motivational strategies from the Bible. Uh, God was the first motivational speaker. God, God always is motivating us in one way or another to be about the things that we're supposed to be about. And here God is motivating us by giving us this wonderful promise that the task will be accomplished. You'd think that would be enough and we could go home. But, hey, I, I'm... It's just, not just that I'm a Presbyterian, so I have to have three things to say. There are actually three things in the text. So I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just doing what the text has laid out before me. There's another promise. Uh, because you might say, yeah, it sounds good uh, that we're going to make it all the way home. And then you have that four-letter word that only has three letters in it. But you don't know about the obstacles that are in my life And no, I don't, but God does. And so here's his second promise to you. No obstacle will be too great. No obstacle will be too great. And you know, some of us are wired to see the obstacles. And some of us are not. There were two guys who were um, marketers 
for a particular shoe company, and they went to an underdeveloped company uh, country, and they went there to kind of put their thumb on the pulse to see if there was a market there for the shoe products. The one guy uh, sent a text message back to headquarters, and he said, no market here. Nobody wears shoes. The other guy sends a text message back, and he says, great market here. Nobody wears shoes. <laughs> So you see, obstacles are a reality. I don't want you to be an ostrich and put your head in that proverbial sand and pretend that obstacles don't exist. On the other hand, I don't want you to be so overwhelmed by the obstacles that you don't do the next thing. And so God addresses this by saying, no obstacles will be too great. If no obstacles will be too great, what's that presume there are? Obstacles. He, he wouldn't have said it if there weren't. But on the other hand, he says no obstacles will be too great because he doesn't want those potential obstacles to keep you from doing the next thing. Joshua certainly faced many obstacles. Um, in the crossing of the Jordan River story, chapters 3 and 4, there's a little geographical note that is added. It says that God brought the people of Israel across the Jordan River when the river was at flood stage. Now, anybody from California here? Southern California in particular? Too far away? That foreign country way out there? Well, the, the climate and the geography of Southern California is really much like Israel. And uh, this time of year, we're in October, if we were to be in Southern California and we would be going across a bridge and we'd say, hey, let's stop on the bridge and look over at the river, guess what we wouldn't see underneath us? There would be no water flowing. Dry season, rainy season. In Israel right now and in Southern California right now, we're just coming out of about five months of no rain and all sunshine. So the rivers, there's no water flowing in any of the rivers. God could have brought the children of Israel across the Jordan River in October. They could have just like walked right across. The text says God brought them across the Jordan River when the river was at flood stage. This is like February, March. The worst possible time. Have you ever said that? God, what are you doing? This is the worst possible time. This is the worst possible time for all sorts of things. Some of you have probably said, God, what are you doing? Our senior pastor just left. Don't you know the trajectory that we have been on? This is like the worst possible time. Obstacles to keeping about what we're supposed to be doing as a congregation. And God says, yeah, I get it, but from my perspective, the worst possible time always turns out to be the best time because I wouldn't do it any other way. All things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. You see, had the children of Israel not gone across the Jordan when the river was at flood stage, they might have begun to think, we can pull this one off. We have the resources that we need to make it all the way home and to enter into the promised land. 
Well, God brought them across at a time when they had to be acutely aware that if they were going to make it into the promised land, they were going to do so because God was going to do for them what they could not do for themselves, and that is part the water. It's kind of like Jericho. Um, God called them to take the walls down, and uh, so he didn't say, you know, go get your crowbars and your battering rams. Here's how I want you to take the walls down. March around, march around, march around, march around, shout. And they came down. Why? Well, we're going to see this theme momentarily, but it's so that they would be keenly aware that God was the one who was at work in them to will and to do his good pleasure and to bring them all the way into the promised land. And in addition, remember this transition in leadership stuff? These folks had only known Moses as their pastor. Who is this young whippersnapper, Joshua, and should we follow him? Remember that? Okay, well, when the people saw Joshua part the water, did that remind them of anything? Yes, Joshua parting the Jordan reminded them of Moses parting the Red Sea, and they say, well, maybe God does know what he's doing. He's giving us a new leader who can part the Jordan. Okay, a little bit different, but the same fundamental thing as this older guy who... Parted the Red Sea for us, because after all, it was neither Moses nor Joshua who was doing any of the parting. God was still there with his people in the transition. We're going to come back to that point momentarily. Well, they had other obstacles. Remember the spies? They they used that four-letter word, great land, but the cities are walled too high. Well, what happened to Jericho? The walls came down. The people are too big. We're like grasshoppers in their eyes. God took care of that. Sin that remained. Remember when they did conquer the, um, the, uh, the central cities and they weren't supposed to take any spoil and this guy named Achan took some spoil and then they lost, their, lost the next battle? God was able to take care of that. See, there will be obstacles along the way, but no obstacle will be too great. And the reason why no obstacle will be too great is because nothing is impossible with God. See, it's not because we have so much ability and power and resources. God will use everything that you have and everything that you are, but it's God who's the one who is doing it all. And because uh, because God is the one who is at work and because nothing is impossible with God, they made it in. And, and we face obstacles as well. Uh, we're, we're probably familiar with that verse in Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders. Now, why does God say, let us throw off everything that hinders? Is it because there's nothing there that hinders? He knows that there are things that can hinder us in running that race to make it all the way home. There are the disappointments, there are the fears, there are the discouragements. They're they're just the the basic day-to-day cares of this life. All of those things can just hinder us from doing the next thing that we're to be doing as a congregation so that we make it all the way home and we bring others with us. 
throw off everything that hinders. God knows that there are, there's stuff that hinders. And then he says, and the sin that so easily entangles. Oh, that's the biggest one, isn't it? Uh, you know, the, the biggest obstacle to you moving forward is not the makeup of the search committee. I don't even know who they are, so I can't be stepping on anybody's toes. It's, it's not that you don't have a senior pastor. Um, it's not the location of the building. It's not the demographics of the congregation. The biggest thing that hinders you in moving forward is the sin that remains in each of our hearts. That's the biggest obstacle right there. Uh, but with God, nothing is impossible. Philippians 1.6 says, being confident, don't you love that word? Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. And so it's, it's okay to see the sin that remains within us and to be aware of it. We don't have to pretend that it's not there, but we don't get stuck there, do we? Because that would surely lead to that P word, procrastination. God understands that. Everything is possible with God. And so back to the Hebrews 12, after it says, throw off everything, it says, fix your eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross and scorned the shame and entered the Father's presence at the Father's right hand. Consider him so that you will not procrastinate. Well, that's not quite the word it uses, but that's the point. So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Now, you know, funerals are odd, aren't they? On the one hand, they're sad. On the other hand, they're kind of happy because you're seeing friends and family that you haven't seen. This is really mixed emotions. And some of you are probably experiencing that. On, on the one hand, there's kind of sad and grief and maybe some frustration that you're going through this transition. On the other hand, you've got a search committee that's going. You're thinking about new stuff. And we who doesn't like new stuff? We all kind of like the anticipation of something new, new, voca- new vacation, new piece of clothing, new whatever. And uh, so there's kind of this excitement. Uh, and um, that excitement is wonderful, you know, but sometimes it doesn't have a lot of fuel in it. And so I'm not saying that you're not going to have a pastor next month, but it might take a little bit more than that, yes? It might take a half a year. It might take a year. And uh, the, the longer it stretches out, the more easy it is to become discouraged, disheartened, and to, to lose that, that enthusiasm that God is at work in us. And that's why the text says that, that we should fix our eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and scorned the shame, so that we will not grow Weary and lose heart. Now, why on earth does God say, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart? Why would he ever say that? Because he knows that you have a tendency to do what? Grow weary and lose heart. He gets it. See, he understands you. Um, and and he, he not only understands you, he accepts you. He embraces you. And he gives you words of promise. Words, words of promise that you can hold on to, to keep you from procrastinating, to keep you on the right path, doing the basic things that God has called you to do as a congregation. No obstacles will be too great. And uh, 
because of that, you can be assured that the task will be accomplished. And, and here's the third promise. It's just in that last half of verse 5. As I was with Moses, I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. The third promise is simply that the Lord is with you. He was with Israel through Moses. Later, he was with Israel through Joshua. But you know, the the Moses part and the Joshua part weren't nearly as important as the I am with you part. It was God who was with the people through Moses. It was God who was with the people through Joshua. It was God who was with you through Mike. It was God who was with you uh, through Bernie, if any of you go back that far. Uh, It's God who will be with you through the next pastor. You see, pastors come and go, uh, but God remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so while you're in a time of transition, you see, are you a no market here? They don't wear shoes. Great market here. They don't. It's your choice. You have the choice to choose which perspective you're going to take. You can either say, no Mike here, or you can say, God is with us. Going to make a difference in how you progress through the transition. I'd suggest the latter. Remember, remember Mike, honor Mike, let go of Mike. Honor the Lord, remember the Lord, don't let go of the Lord. He's the steady constant through all of the transition. He promises to be with you. And in particular, the promise is in this language. He he promises to be with you to fight for you. Listen to the text in Deuteronomy. It's a repeated theme. The Lord your God who is going before you will fight for you as he did for you in Egypt. Do not be afraid of them, that is all these big giants in the land. The Lord your God himself will fight for you. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. That's what they were learning when they crossed the wrong sea at the worst possible time. That's what they were learning when they brought the walls down at Jericho without a single weapon. It's the Lord your God will part the waters for you. The Lord your God will bring the walls down for you. That's what he was teaching them all along the way. And we always need to be learning that in newer and deeper ways. And certainly one of the reasons why you're in the transition that you're in is because God wants you to learn more deeply that the most fundamental thing in life is not the name of your senior pastor. It's the fact that God himself is with you. He's in front of you. He's behind you. He's all around you. And he's the one who takes care of everything on your behalf. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? What can be against us? And he gives all these different uh, opposing circumstances. He doesn't particularly mention the fact that we're without a senior pastor, but he could have. 
if he wanted to. He's made you more than conquerors in Christ. He says that he who gave his only son for us all, how will he not along with him also graciously give us all things? Now, both in Greek and English, that's kind of a convoluted sentence. Let me simplify it for you. Paul is saying that here's what God is saying. If God's already given you his very, very, very best, do you think that somehow he would now fail to give you any of these lesser things that you might need? He's given you his son. It's utterly unthinkable in having given his son for you as the church that he would now fail to give you any of these smaller things that you need like a senior pastor it's utterly unthinkable that he would fail to give you any of these smaller things along the way. He'll give you everything that you need to enter into heaven and to bring others along with you. And two things that he has given you, one is the reading and preaching of his word, and the other is the celebration of the Lord's Supper. So I'm going to pray now. Uh, to bring the preaching of the word to conclusion. And we're going to make another kind of transition, that is to the celebration of the Lord's table. And I want to pick up some of these themes there to show you how God uses the Lord's table to reinforce what's in the preaching of the word. But before we get there, let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we pray that you would bless this uh, reading and preaching of your word to each of our hearts, that we might believe the promises that you have given to us. We pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, let's stand and respond to God's word by singing together uh, just verses 1 through 2 of the, uh, of the, the S.H., Supplemental hymnal, (laughs) number seven.
Be seated, please. Let me read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 23, where the Apostle Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In, um, in my Hebrew 1 class that I teach online, along with Hebrew, I give the students a book to read, a short book called How Biblical Languages Work. Because it often helps to have a theoretical understanding of how languages work to demystify the learning of a new language when you realize that languages kind of all work in the same way. Well, I have them read the last chapter first because the last chapter is on learning styles. Because not everybody learns. I mean, we all use the same kind of learning styles, but some of us gravitate toward one style or another. And I want students to kind of become self-aware of the best ways that they learn so that they can use their own strengths in learning to acquire a new language. Now, in, in preaching, the presumption is that you're all strong auditory learners. So you're learning everything by taking it in through the ears. Uh, And God understands that while you all do process as auditory learners, that there are other ways that some of you process better. Some of you are more visual. And if you can see a chart, you can get it much more easily than if you uh, just hear somebody describe all the numbers to you. And, and, and some of you are really stronger at kinesthetic or tactile learning. You're much better when you can just, and this is kind of like the Montessori school system. This is like hands-on, nitty-gritty learning. Well, God gets that. And how do I know God gets that? Because he not only gives us the preaching of the word, he gives us the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. See, in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, God's speaking to your learning style. Uh, But he's not doing it through your ears. He's doing it through your eyes for those of you who like pictures more than you like words. And for those of you who like to learn by handling things, you know, that's the Lord's Supper. So it's, it's visual learning and it's kinesthetic learning at the same time. That way God covers all of the bases. Now, I'm not arguing this point theologically, but this is what some churches would say is a good argument for doing what with the Lord's Supper? Having it every Sunday. So that all of our different, and I, 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 that's not in my theological position, by the way, but you can see that it does make sense, Yes because then we're all getting it with all of our learning strengths. Well, you see, uh, the biggest obstacle to your making it all the way home is the lack of the presence of God. That the, The I will be with you, see, the I will be with you is really impossible. And the reason why, the I, having tried to encourage you with it, I just now want to say it's impossible for God to be with you. And why is it 
impossible for God to be with you. It's because of that intermediate thing of the obstacles and the sin that so easily remains. See, because God can't have, and he can't be like in the presence of sin. He's too holy. He's too pure to look on evil. So how can he be with us when we have this great obstacle? And if we have this great obstacle called sin, then we can have no confidence that the task is going to be accomplished. Well, I, I've explained that to you with words. And for those of you who learn best, you know, uh, visually or by feeling it and by tasting it, God wants to tell you the same thing. See, th- that obstacle of sin, you're going to feel it. You're going to taste it. Nothing's impossible with God. He's dealt with that obstacle. It's gone. It doesn't exist anymore. Because God sent his son to live a perfect life of righteousness in your place and to die on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins so there would be no obstacle to to him being present with you. He's He's broken the barrier down. You now have free access to the presence of God because of because of the body of Christ broken for you, because of the blood of Christ shed for you. And, and because the obstacle is gone, I can guarantee you that the task is going to be accomplished. So, if you're able to see the cup and the bread, hear God. How, how else do you explain it? You know, see God. See God in these elements, uh, assuring you that he's with you to the very end of the age, so no obstacle is too great. You will succeed in making it all the way home. Or if you can't see these, you can feel them. You can taste them. You can touch them. Smell the wine. Use all of those tactile experiences and, and know that through all of them, God is giving you the assurance of faith that he's with you. As surely as you are taking these elements into you physically, as Glenn said at the, in one of the prayers, so most assuredly you are united to Christ. He is with you. He's in you. You're in him. And because of that, there is no obstacle that is too great. You will make it all the way home, and you will bring others with you. And if this, is, if this is true of you, this faith in Christ, and if you're a member of a confessing evangelical church, come and, and, and experience with your eyes, with all of your senses, the good word of God to you. The good word that you will accomplish the task. No obstacle will be too great because he's with you. Experience his withness this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this bread. We thank you for this cup. And we thank you for how you communicate with us according to our learning styles and through all of our senses that we might be assured that we will make it to heaven and bring others with us and that no obstacle will be too great because you are with us as surely as we are eating and drinking uh, this morning. And so these are just ordinary things, ordinary bread, ordinary wine, but would you use them in a most extraordinary way to assure us in our faith, praying in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
the elders and deacons would come forward. Oh, I just smelled the wine when I lifted that lid up. The Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and having blessed it, as I have done in his name, he gave it to his disciples, and he said, take this and eat, this is my body, which has been broken for you. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the body of Christ broken for you. God is with you. No obstacle will be too great. You will accomplish the task that he has given to you. Feast in your hearts by faith. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, which has been blessed in his name, and he said, This is my blood 
in the new covenant shed for you for the forgiveness of sin. Drink all of it. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. This is the blood of Christ shed for you so that you can know that God is with you. No obstacle will be too great. You will make it all the way home and bring a multitude with you that nobody can even count. Feast in your hearts by faith.
Holy Spirit, we pray that you would seal to our hearts that which we experience in the cup and in the bread, that we might go into the next days of our lives before you with full assurance that you are with us and that no obstacle will be too great and that we will accomplish the task that you have set before us. Praying in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, let's stand and respond by singing the third and fourth verses of number seven, Behold the Lamb. Mm -hmm. 